I'm your host, Lacey Ramsey. And I'm your host, Alex Brennan. We are a podcast for the strange and unusual. Every other Friday, we release an episode where one of your hosts teaches the other about a topic or event that we find to be strange or unusual. On Monday, before the episode is released, we post our custom-themed cocktail recipe so you have time to get the ingredients and drink along with us. So sit back and relax. It's time for Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Shame on you, George Wallace, for the wet ropes that bruise the muscles, for the bullwhips that cut the flesh, for the clubs that broke the bones, and for the tear gas that seared the eyes and the nose and the nostrils and the lungs and choked people into insensibility. This is not the American way. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Four days of rioting, looting, and arson rocked the city of Detroit in the worst outbreak of urban racial violence this year. Civil rights leaders make a joint condemnation of the violence and call for an end to the rioting. President Johnson, using firm words, urges the nation's citizens to support the maintenance of law and order. I know that the vast majority of Negroes and whites are shocked and they're outraged by them. Yes, I turned around quickly, and the next thing I saw was Malcolm falling back in a dead faint. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. When the nation with the greatest tradition of the rule of law is plagued by unprecedented lawlessness, and when the President of the United States cannot travel abroad or to any major city at home without fear of a hostile demonstration, then it's time for new leadership for the United States of America. But I assume the presidency under extraordinary circumstances never before experienced by Americans. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. You got anything to drink tonight? Not tonight, no. Not tonight, okay. One of the things that we do is we ask people to vote through this thing, okay? Caitlin Ebner crossed the line and got pulled over on her way home from work. Well, real hard. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. You can stop. No, she wasn't drinking. All tests for alcohol came up empty. When's the last time you smoked marijuana? Oh, I don't do that. You, I can give you a drug test right now. I you, you, you don't smoke marijuana? I do not. Okay. No. Right. Well, you're showing me indicators that you have been smoking marijuana, okay. I didn't realize that you could get arrested for something that you didn't do until it happened to me. When's the last time you smoked weed? I don't smoke weed. You don't smoke weed? No, not at all. The same thing happened to this college student two weeks earlier on Good Friday. Well, I believe you have, okay. I need to borrow your arm real quick, okay? In 1973, there were 2,000 inmates. Four decades later, 22,000. The increase was caused by a surge in crime, mostly in the 80s and 90s, and by the tough-on-crime response by judges and state lawmakers. Yeah!
you doing? I made my drink. I know it's only two o'clock, but that's where we're at today. <laughs> the only reason I don't have an alcoholic beverage in front of me was because I had very uneven sleep last night. Mm. So uh, I've technically only been truly awake for like an hour and a half, and I haven't eaten yet. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's fair. I was like, let's not risk that. I just had breakfast, and I get a little shaky from the coffee. So maybe the alcohol will smooth it out. That's this is how we're supposed to use substances, right? You just gotta right? even it out. <laughs> you had your uppers, now you need your downers. You're an uppersma. But Lacey, are are you still doing caffeine? Are you, are you doing the caffeine? I am concerned about you doing the caffeine. My name is Lacey Ramsey, and I am a caffeine holic. <laughs> I have one cup of coffee every day, and it's really, you know, it's affected my life in the following ways. <laughs> I'm gonna reply by saying my name is Alex and one cup of coffee is cute. I know, I know! It's like my favorite addiction because it's the most controlled. <laughs> like of all the dangerous things I do, I think, you know, coffee is uh, the least dangerous. Oh, so I told my- oh, I guess we should back up a little bit. Um, the reason we are a week late is I got the Rona! Alex had the Rona! My Corona, it was shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I just kind of ad-libbed there. Um, but one of the things that I promised uh, Kendall, Lacey, and our other friends was that if I survive COVID, I would go out for a roller derby. Uh, we still need to pick my roller derby name. I told I my mom about it. I watched I all of our videos. Um, maybe we'll put it on the website at some point, uh, and maybe people can vote on it. That would be so fun to have a poll to choose Alex's roller derby name. <laughs> well, I told my mom about it, and I was like, well, I survived COVID, I guess I gotta go up for roller derby now, and my mom was just like, please don't. You broke your back playing soccer, you already got a concussion snowboarding, you've skateboarded, you've BMX. It's like, you do every dangerous thing. Please do not <laughs> throw your body into further peril. <laughs> and I was like, That's oh, fair. well, I made a pact with the universe that if I survive, so. <laughs> so either this or I guess God will smite me. Yeah, she just outright said, just like, please don't do it. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I promise I will never do that. Never fingers crossed. Yeah, I also told my mom I'd never smoke weed or get a tattoo, so I mean, it's a little bit late for a lot of things. <laughs> that is very fair. <laughs> Considering all the dangerous things I do, I probably shouldn't do roller derby, but I actually, I really wanted to do it for a while, and I think you guys just gave me the permission that I've been waiting for from a collective poll to go for it. Of all the people I know who would do roller derby, it's definitely you. You're number one on the list. It'd be fun to go see, too. All right. Um, Should we get into yeah, it? Let's do it. I am. Um, I have to tell you, uh, apart from all the sweatiness and the technical frustrations, my fears and my shaky hands, you know, all the problems that I have. I'm really excited about this episode. I think it's going to be so timely and topical. I was excited coming up with the cocktail and putting together the visual for it. So um, I don't know. I'm just really curious to see like what your research has brought up and I'm ready to be mad. Yeah, um, I learned a lot of legalese to the point where I joked around with Heath yesterday, I think I'm ready to take the bar. I think I'm finally going to fulfill my dad's <laughs> prophecy and just follow him into law. 
So, uh, as you know, this episode, number one, this is the third subject change that we've had for this episode, because originally I was going to do a uh, harp, and then I was like, I don't want to talk about science stuff. And so then I was going to do uh, Ghost Watch, and then everything started happening uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter, and it kind of inspired this new line that we went down. So, the times they are changing. Thank you, Bob Dylan. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, also, the opening theme from the movie uh, Watchmen. and So good. So good. My favorite superhero movie of all time. Uh, have you read the comic yet? No, I have it in my to read. I moved it from my things I'm borrowing to things I intend to read place. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and for those of you who don't know, I'm a huge comic book nerd, and so I have the absolute edition of Watchmen. I've had it for years. Uh, I had it actually before the movie came out, and I loaned it to Lacey. Like How two many years, years ago? ago or something. It's been a while. I tried to give it back to you once, and you are like, have you read it? And I was like, no. And you were like, well, then hold on to it. And I was like, okay. It's going to take me a while, though. I mean, I, also I know... Like- you're not, yeah, I know you're not gonna like throw it in a fire or something. I know I'll no. eventually get back. And if it did get damaged, I would buy you a new one. I borrowed somebody's dialectic coach book that had CDs to learn to do a Scottish accent for a play, and the cover I accidentally ripped the cover off <laughs> um, because it was falling apart anyway. And so I bought her a new book, and she was like, "You don't need to buy me a new book." And I was like, "It's fine. I could also use a copy of this. It's really no big deal. Books are very important. I treasure books." Don't worry about replacing Absolute Watchmen. That book is like $125. So is the dialect book. That's what I'm saying. I have a strong commitment. I have a strong commitment to books. (laughs) I I will not hurt your book. And if I lose your book, I'll replace it. But I can't imagine losing it. It's been in two places in my apartment. So (laughs) The reason I bring that up is because uh, HBO's Watchmen is also very timely for the conversation. Um, Oh, God. And did you read where Trump where and when Trump is having his first rally? Oh god, no. On the anniversary of the Black Wall Street massacre in Tulsa, the 99-year anniversary. Are you fucking kidding me? You know, it would be funny if I was, right? But no. Um that is what he's doing then and there. Don't worry, we're going to get more we're gonna, our fury towards Donald Trump is going to only raise during this episode. So this episode was inspired by something that I read on Reddit, and I think a lot of us have seen, and that's uh, that tear gas is banned by the Geneva Convention. So why do our police forces use it for protests and riots domestically? And so that kind of eventually became, uh, I'm going to research the Geneva Convention. And then with all the activity going on, it became the intersection between the rights provided by the Geneva Convention and the Black Lives Matter movement. So we're going to go down some rabbit holes today. I'm excited about it. I think it's really timely. And it also made me feel like, I don't know, I, I'm sure we've all been like wondering what we can do to help and be involved. And physically, my body, chronic illness and pain, like being in the streets and going down there doesn't seem like the right thing for me. I looked into like trying to deliver people supplies, but going to a grocery store, like navigating all of that is just like not where my strengths are. And like, it's a big toll on me. And I was like, I donate, we donated some to the arrest fund for Black Lives Matter Seattle, um, which made me feel better. But then I remembered our podcast episode and we have a voice and a platform and we can use our passion and intelligence for good and to help kind of people 
understand and learn about things like this. So that kind of brought me some comfort. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I separated this episode into three parts. Okay. Part one is going to be uh, probably the fastest part. Is uh, I named it Addressing Your White Privilege. Our second part is what I named A Brief History of Ugly Truths. And then the third part is The Hard Math and Painful Facts. And I've left room for discussion in this. This is more or less, this is a little bit more freeform than most of my episodes, because as you know, I like to kind of tie things off in a nice little neat story and a bow and a nice little narrative. But the oh, thing I is, do. My mom loves that about your stories. <laughs> the problem, though, is that we are still in the middle of the narrative. We're right in the middle of the story right now. So I've left room for discussion. The things that I have put in my report are more or less... Uh, guideposts along the road of our discussion. Okay, so. that makes sense. I, and I think we both have probably a lot of thoughts on the topic, so. Yes. Okay, so you I'm going to get start into the cocktail first. Oh, yes. Oh my god, I am so sorry. That's okay. Uh, I wanted you, I wanted to let you do an intro because that makes sense and it contextualizes what I'm doing. So you can see what I'm drinking here. It's the same as the cocktail I showed everyone last night on the Marco Polo. I've got a cute little twisty orange garnish. You guessed it was a Rob Roy. Miranda guessed it was an old fashioned. It's actually a Jennifer convention. <laughs> tell me more, tell me more, how much booze is inside? Tell me more, tell me more, drink for these and you'll have died. Uh, <laughs> love the ad love. <laughs> so, um, Genever is a uh, predecessor of gin. It was made by the Dutch in the 16th century. And I found this great source, uh, winemag.com, has an article titled Five Cocktails That Prove You Need to Drink More Genever. Uh, this article describes Genever as the malty, mellow love child of gin and whiskey. Ooh, I need to drink more of this, but tell me more. So I had never had it, but I got really excited, obviously, for the opportunity to pun on Geneva Convention. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, as I usually do when I get like new ingredients, I like tasted just on its own. What does this taste like? And it reminded me a little bit of, I've had this clear whiskey from, there's um, a company up here called Five O'Clock Distilling, I think. And they have like this clear whiskey and it's, it's like nothing I've ever tasted. It doesn't fully taste like whiskey. There's something like more botanical to it. Um, so it's, to me, it's a little bit like that, like a more herbal kind of whiskey. Uh, it's a clear spirit. And uh, I made basically the Jennifer Convention is an adapted Negroni. Okay. So that's kind of the base cocktail. I've never really been into Negronis, I think because I don't like Campari. So a Negroni is usually gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. And I like gin. Uh, I had never had sweet vermouth on its own before, so I bought some, and I really like it. It's like fruity and fun. Um, and then instead of Campari, I used Aperol because I bought a bottle of Aperol like a year ago, and mm -hmm. I haven't figured out what to do with it. I keep trying Aperol and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the cocktails that like are on our website <laughs> went through some iteration where they had Aperol in them, but it ruined them. So <laughs> I took it out. Uh, I was really excited to find something where I could use those things. And I think this is just an, like, I really enjoy this drink. Like I had a couple last night and I still made one for this, like this podcast today. <laughs> so uh, the Jennifer convention is one part each, Jennifer, sweet vermouth, and Aperol. Uh, Aperol is also just a little bit sweeter than Campari, so I think it makes the flavor profile of this drink just a little bit more, um, I, I like a little bit sweeter. So mm -hmm. uh, you pour all of those over ice and stir and garnish with an orange peel. 
So that's that one. And then there's a uh, the Virgin, the mocktail version of the Jennifer Convention. I found it on um, a website called thezeroproof.com, an article titled, Is This the Perfect Virgin Negroni? So try it and tell me. Uh, this is uh, the mocktail for Jennifer Convention is one part each, tonic water, Navarro Vineyard's non-alcoholic Pinot Noir juice. So they're a vineyard that produces mm. wine, but they also produce uh, varietal juices based on their grapes. Uh, Seedlip Grove's uh, 42 distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Uh, I really want to try the Seedlip stuff. I'm super curious about what their distilled non-alcoholic spirits are like. And a dash of Angostura bitters, as well as a dash of Pechad's bitters. Um, I think that really adds probably complexity to the virgin drink. I added Ag Angostura to this, the Jennifer convention, the actual cocktail, and it made it worse. So um, I left it out for this one, I think probably because the original ingredients pack enough of an herbal punch without adding that. Yeah. So, so excited by all of your cocktails. You always come up with something that's just like perfect. And I am so glad you've taken over that part of the podcast because I don't think I have the patience for it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I am so excited for when we're recording together again because I'm going to get you drunk. Yeah, and I definitely, definitely want to try this drink next time you and I are together. Thank you. I will uh, for sure make sure that I make you one. Uh, I also learned that uh, Jennifer can only be made in specific areas, including Belgium and parts of France, Germany, and Holland. So it's another one that is uh, limited by area. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I also always like learn stuff when I'm researching and creating these cocktails, which is really fun. And vermouth goes bad in like a month, so I've got to figure out what to do with that yeah. open bottle of sweet red, red vermouth. I might just drink it with like soda or something. It's really good. Yeah. Hmm, well, it goes bad in a month. I have next Friday off. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I don't know the math on. This. What could we do? Oh, by the way, this episode has really pushed my math skills. I did so much math. Um, oh. I have a full page. I might actually take pictures of all of the equations and things that I put together. Are you ready? <sighs> drink in hand. I'm ready to go. Yeah, you're going to need that drink. So part one, addressing your white privilege. To quote Logan Browning, as Samantha White in the Netflix series of the same phrase, Dear White People. My brother and I had different conversations in our adolescence. My parents pulled my brother aside and talked to him about what would happen when he got older and people offered him drugs and alcohol. My parents spoke to me about what would happen if someone tried to rape me. My friend Jill's parents warned her what would happen or what could happen if she was stopped by the police. There's a big disparity there. Yeah. My ancestors, and probably your ancestors, chose to immigrate to America. Our black friends' ancestors may not have. Right. We can imagine, we can create metaphors, but we can never and will never understand the experience of the black American as white Americans. But there are things we can do. Number one, step back. We have spoken enough. Your neighbors, your brothers, and your sisters need your support, your understanding, your ears, and your resolve. Number two, educate your white counterparts. Someone speaks out of turn or ignorance, correct them. Your half of the conversation is to educate them. They can choose to ignore you, but you do greater harm when you choose silence. And that one's really hard. I, I just want to pause there. Like that one is, it sounds so simple and it's like, you know, speak up, but the nature of peer groups is such that like there can be this inertia against saying something. Yeah, it does 
take courage, but that's why I said in part one, what our black counterparts need is our resolve to Amen. try to educate our white counterparts. I wrote this last night in like a fury of anger, so <laughs> I've just been so immersed in this. Um, number three, educate yourself. We live in the information age. Do your research. Verify your sources. To quote George Carlin, and this is one of my favorite quotes, don't just teach your children to read. Teach them to question what they read. Teach them to question everything. There is a nearly bottomless well of information and media waiting for you. Go find it. I like that a lot. George Carlin has a lot of fabulous quotes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Number four, show up. Sign petitions. Your signature is free. Donate if you can. Donate when you can. Volunteer if you have the time. Don't brag about it or sell it, just do it. And the reason I added that don't brag about it or sell it part. So I'm, as you know, not the most religious person, but what? one- I know. But one of my favorite teachings I remember uh, that Jesus said is he talked about donating anom uh, anonymously and the point of the Lord's Prayer. Because people would be like, look at how much money I'm donating and look at me throwing myself down, worshiping God. And he was like, no, if you're doing that, then you're doing that for attention. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Don't I do it for the praise. I saw a great thing this past week that was like, Hey, everybody who's ever posted pictures of you with a black child on a missionary trip who's not involved in Black Lives Matter in the United States, do you think maybe it was more about the vacation for you? Yeah. Check yourself. And, you know, I went to Guatemala on a mission trip with my youth group when I was 17 and didn't really question it. Like, we were there to help. We were doing good. It wasn't colonialism. It wasn't, like, trying to make <laughs> another culture adopt our culture and accept our values. It was the right thing to do. And, you know, I've had years to try to wrap my mind around that thinking yeah amazing how many uh mission trips really have that underlying message of we are the white savior yeah and it's like leading them to jesus and it's like well actually like the beliefs in guatemala are like an amalgam of tribal beliefs and catholicism and it's not that they don't believe in jesus they just didn't believe the exact way that these baptists believed so who yeah yeah uh, and when I say uh, show up, I mean show up as you can. Now, like you said, uh, you have physical limitations that make it difficult for you to show up to protests and rallies. And it's very difficult to get to a lot of those areas. There are other ways to show up. Showing up is speaking up. Showing up is donating. Showing up is signing petitions. If you can't be there physically, there are still things you can do. Um, you can, I posted a link. You can like write your representatives and your mayor. Like it's so easy now to find out who are your reps and just write them a letter. There's form letters everywhere. Like these are what we're asking for, for people's rights. Yeah. Uh, and then one point that I put on here that I feel like I need to stress. It is never okay to use the N word. Never. It Period. just isn't. It just isn't. If you're singing along to a rapper song, just quit. Just don't. Just don't say yeah. it. You can just self-censor a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like um, in the song uh, Gold Digger, they covered it on the TV show Glee. And to cover the use of the N-word, they say, she ain't missing with no broke, no broke, no broke. Right. And, and that was the radio edit. Yeah. And that's what I sing whenever I sing that song, even if I'm listening to the original version. Lee uh, sings Ninja sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> because of who he is. 
Yeah, so uh, there will be parts during this where I will be quoting people who use the N-word. I will not be using the N-word when I say those quotes. I will just be saying N. Gotcha. Number seven, Black Lives Matter does not mean only Black Lives Matter. It doesn't mean Black Lives Matter more. It means what it means. Black Lives Matter. I love um, Michael Che has a thing about that. He's like, really? That's where we're starting the negotiation that Black Lives Matter? Like, that makes you guys mad? Where do we need to start? Black lives exist? Can we say that? (laughs) I saw a good um, Mean Girls one uh, where Regina George says uh, Black Lives Matter and Katie says All Lives Matter and Regina says, so you agree? You think Black Lives Matter? (laughs) I actually really like that one. (laughs) like, that's good. Uh, And then number eight, I put embrace your discomfort. You are not a villain for being white, but you will never be a hero if you remain silent and or ignorant. Check your privilege. Uh, That is is just so necessary. Like, refusing to participate because you're uncomfortable is the fucking definition of privilege. Like, you, you don't have to engage with the conversation, so you don't because you don't know how to navigate it. Yeah, you are choosing not to get involved. You're choosing not to educate yourself. It's easier for you to run back to the safety of your privilege. Right, whereas people of color don't really have a choice about whether to engage in issues about how they're treated. Yeah, I think I told you that earlier this year, uh, I was speaking to my friend Jill about this, and she, I've said repeatedly on this podcast, is one of the most amazing human beings I know. She's a high school guidance counselor, I've seen her go out of her way with people that she barely knows. She is one of the most incredible human beings on the planet. In fact, when I had COVID, uh, I had a package come in the mail and I thought it was something that I had ordered from Amazon. So like, I kind of ignored it half the day. So I brought it upstairs to open it. And it turned out she and her boyfriend and one of our other friends had put together this little care package that they sent me. And it's like, there's a little card that says, uh, you're a weirdo and I love you. And now it's like on the wall of my bedroom and uh, they sent me like a face mask and some tea and some honey and like a little sticker of like a 2020 dumpster fire <laughs> and that's lovely that's just the kind of person she is i remember one time we went to go to like a psychic bookstore to get our tarot done and it was closed and so we i rolled down my window she rolled her, down her window and i was like i don't know what do we do now and she was like we could do plate crafts and she lifted up like all these like colors and like these paper plates and like pipe cleaners and I was just like who has plate crafts ready to go in the car (laughs) (laughs) oh I like Jill and I've never met her I love her so much um she was adopted and her parents are white um and she told me about her father sitting down with her and he had to start the conversation with my parents didn't have to have this conversation with me i don't really know how to have this conversation with you but i'm gonna try my best and he told her you know this is what could happen when you're walking home this is what could happen when you're pulled over and this is what i consider one of the most amazing human beings on the planet and when she told me this story it's like i never even thought that your parents would have this conversation with you i your grandmother uh was my daycare provider we went to school together i felt like we had a lot of the same opportunities but these little separations of experience were things that i just never saw or knew about and we've been friends since we were infants wow yeah, and that's um that's like the nature of privilege is that it's invisible when you have it. You you don't notice it when you have it. Yeah. So um and I 
understand like i'm a white girl i am we joke that i am glow in the dark white <laughs> i <laughs> yeah we both moved up here because we're vampires and blend in better right yeah i mean i'm a white girl who came from a well-off family i my parents my family's not rich but you know they're they're well off my father had a certain degree of power when i was growing up i had the privilege of going to private schools my parents were able to give me a family car to drive when i got my driver's license i had a lot of opportunities that others did not have and the fact that it, it's i just you just don't see that other side you can talk about it you can read about it but it, I had someone so close to me, right next to me, my whole life, and I didn't see this part of her life. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know, there's something really meaningful to me about, like, how two people can live in the same world and still live in different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So, I decided to start on a nice, rough place. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, how many of... I've been pulled over by the cops multiple times and like I was talking to Lee about this and like I was we always get nervous. It's always like I hope I don't get a ticket, you know, like but it's never ever and ever been a fear for my life ever. Not once. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all had the thing where a cop pulls in behind you on the road and you start getting nervous. You're like, I know I'm doing the speed limit. I you feel your balls like, suck back up into your body. Yeah. <laughs> my ovaries jump up into my titties. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've all had that fear. But I was watching the uh, Discovery Channel special, the two-part that Oprah Winfrey was hosting the where do we go from here and one of the talking heads was saying i've had to have the conversation with my kid just get home alive just come home alive wow yeah and i've never had to think of that once right yeah i mean i've had like i'll bail you out for whatever reason but i'm be mad <laughs> like that kind yeah. of talk but not like make sure like just survive yeah yeah um uh in i watched several 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 documentaries going into this uh, one of the documentaries, I think it was the uh, documentary about the 1982 LA riots called Let It Fall. And one of the talking heads was talking about how the conversation when a black man is pulled over is, keep your hands on the wheel, don't move, don't make any sudden movements, don't do this, don't do that. Where for the white person, it's, so do you know why I pulled you over today? What's um, the line from Ride and Dirty? Because uh, I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low. Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. So we're going to start with a uh, brief history of ugly truths. I didn't put every incident and every ugly truth in here just because there are so many, but there are even extra ones that I wrote down that we can talk about as we go through this. Okay. Um, thank you for like, I, I know you always research well and it's not like the exception. It's just like the rule, but I, watching documentaries and getting prepared, I, don't, I know it's time and emotions. Yeah, but like I said, I, I want to know what I'm talking about. I want to know what's happening. So we're going to start with April 1864. Okay. The Senate passed the 13th Amendment. This was before the Civil War officially ended and the Emancipation Proclamation. It wasn't until January of 1865, on January 31st, that the motion was approved by the House of Representatives, ending nearly 200 years of systemic race, uh, slavery. I almost said racism. No, racism was not ended. <laughs> That systemic racism still going. Yeah. Ending nearly 200 years of systemic slavery in North American territories later identified as the United States. I put that specifically in there because 
the United States obviously wasn't 200 years at the time, 200 years old at the time, but there was a British backed and started slavery practices beginning in the Americas before the United States was founded as a country. That's so, good to know. Yeah. I didn't really, yeah, I guess that makes sense from a timeline perspective. I think there's also a, um, social justice piece of recognizing like that we're on Native American land and that like the you know country that became known as America wasn't always and there were people here when we got here and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and actually to that same point, uh if you obviously know the play The Crucible, uh which has to do I played Abigail Williams in high school. Oh my yes, fucking yes. God, that's me. amazing. <laughs> uh which is obviously about the it's a fictionalized tale of the Salem witch trials and in it Tituba is a black slave who was bred in Barbados. Mm-hmm. In actuality, Tituba, the real one, was a Native American. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so that's another thing that I think is strange that it's been like lost to history is in the play, Tituba is a black slave because somehow that was more acceptable and relatable than the fact that we took away the land of a Native American and then blamed them for the mass hysteria that led to the slaughter of people in Salem, Massachusetts. Big oof. Okay. So this is the actual verbiage of the 13th Amendment. Neither slave. You know what's coming. I do. That's That was the sign. <laughs> yeah. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Hmm, to me that sounds a whole lot like incentivizing arresting people for crimes they didn't commit as a source of free labor, but what do I know? Yeah, there is an amazing documentary that you can watch right now on Netflix called 13th. We need to watch that, yeah. Yeah, it's by uh, Ava DuVernay. She's the director of um, When They See Us Now, which is about the Central Park Five. She's done so many amazing documentaries. I just suggest just watching her entire catalog at this point. (laughs) I'm like, just put it on a playlist and watch it all um and it really explores how that loophole the except as punishment for a crime is really exploited in modern day america which is another thing that we will touch base on so now we're going to talk about 1944 on september 3rd Reese taylor the daughter of sharecroppers in abville alabama and i may have pronounced that wrong but fuck them was walking home in the evening with her friend Fanny Daniel and Daniel's 18-year-old son, Wes. They were walking home from church. She volunteered at a church. A large green Chevy with seven men drove by several times before stopping. (sighs) All men were armed, and they kidnapped Reese, took her into a wooded area where six of the seven men brutally raped her. She pled with them for the sake of her husband and her young child. Actually, her great, uh, not her great, her uh, granddaughter, Joyce, is actually now an activist. Oh, wow. Fanny Daniel, her friend, and her son, West, went to the police department as soon as Reese was kidnapped to report the kidnapping. While with the report out, Reese uh, left the wooded area, beaten, naked, made it to the police station. She could not identify her attackers, but she was able to describe the car, which they found belonged to an 18-year-old Hugo Wilson. When they called Wilson in with his father, Wilson admitted that him and his friends picked up Reese, and he admitted that they had sex with her, but claimed that they did it for money. So in the end, he's like, yeah, let's call her a sex worker, and that's not still illegal. (laughs) So 
They said that they had sex with her consensually for money. Regardless, uh, they ended up going to trial because Reese continued to speak about it. At this time, the NAACP, which was still in its early years, sent a representative to go investigate. And this was prior to her own event, which would happen years later. The rep was Rosa Parks. Whoa, okay. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Anyway, in the end, all of her attackers were fully acquitted. And in the end, Reese was fined $250 for prostitution, which as of 2019 dollars is the equivalent of $3,630. Fuck that. All three witnesses to Reese's account who saw her kidnapping were black. And it's believed that's the reason why their testimony was dismissed. I read a recent case recent uh, recently <laughs> about something very similar, and the medical reports showed that there was no way, in there was absolutely no way the sex could have been consensual, and it was still dismissed as not a crime. Yeah, I, as you know, I could go on rants for days about how uh, victims of sexual violence are treated so inhumanely and. Sex is, I heard a quote that said, uh, sex is one of the crimes where we ask, but did it really happen? Like if someone steals your bike, nobody asks, but did someone really steal your bike? But if you're raped and left with emotional scars that last you a lifetime, instead you're asked, what were you really raped? What were you doing? What did you do to deserve to be raped? Right. And, and that's because most people in power don't live in a society that reinforces stealing bikes, but do live in a society that reinforces women's bodies as property of men. Yeah, uh, there is a documentary that's actually currently available on Hulu called The Rape of Reese Taylor. It's very hard watch, but very good one. In it, this is a direct quote from Reese herself. Many ladies got raped. The people there, they seemed like they wasn't concerned about what happened to me, and they didn't try to do nothing about it. I can't help but tell the truth of what happened to me. Is, here's the thing. She says here, many ladies got raped. Almost like this is a daily thing. She just wasn't yeah. quiet about it because she was almost like, obviously this happened. Are right. you fucking kidding me? This obviously happened. She probably didn't say fuck. She was much more, she was much classier than that. But Correct. I'm angry. So that's just event one. This one you're also familiar with. In 1955, on August 28th, while in Money, Mississippi, Emmett Till was accused of offending, and I hate that they put offending in all descriptions, offending slash whistling at Carol Bryant while at Bryant's Grocery. He was often described as jovial, joking around to the point where his cousins even said it was sometimes hard to tell when he was being serious because he was always joking. He and his cousin Curtis Jones had skipped church, and Curtis Jones stopped outside the grocery store so he could go play checkers with friends, and he left Till with his other coven, uh, coven, cousin, Simeon Wright. One thing that I actually found out about this that a lot of people don't touch on, he, this was obviously Jim Crow South. His cousin Curtis worked as a sharecropper and the grocery store was on the sharecropper land. Gotcha. So this is out in the field, a lot of sharecroppers around, and Curtis just wants to play with his friends like while they're on break. Apparently, Emmett Till had a stutter. He had trouble pronouncing his bees and he would often whistle to alleviate this. My Mm. younger brother had a lisp growing up because of a tongue thrust, and one of the things that he was recommended to do was to whistle and to drink milkshakes to help strengthen those muscles in his mouth. Interesting. So this, I can actually verify, is a long-held practice. It's believed that he was whistling while she was stocking the gum, 
because he or stocking the candy because he wanted to order bubble gum. When he whistled, it was if he did whistle, it likely was louder than he expected. It wasn't a wait woo wolf type whistle. It was just a loud whistle. Uh, once Carol Bryant reacted and Wright saw the two boys fled the store, they immediately told their cousin Curtis Jones, and Curtis Jones told them to run home. He said, just get out of here because you don't know how white people are going to react around here. God. Few days later, Carol's husband, Roy Bryant, who ran the store, and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, kidnapped Emmett Till, and they beat him, mutilated him, and shot him in the head before dumping his body in the Tallahatchie River. He was found three days later. His mother elected to have an open casket funeral so people could see what they did to her son. I know you've seen the pictures. I'm debating whether or not I will put them on the website. Um, I haven't seen the pictures. I'm one, I'm one of those people who uh, avoids pictures and stuff like that because I uh, I get them seared into my brain and I will be trying to fall asleep and I will be like, hey, remember this really horrible thing that you saw once? Okay. Uh, I may or may not put it on the website. Um, I probably won't, but... Uh, the photos that I have collected so far of all the victims that I will be listing today, I tried to find pictures of them smiling. The reason I specifically did that is I think it's more humanizing when you see someone in a genuine happy moment. I think when you see someone with just a deadpan face, it's too easy to be like, oh, well, I could see how they could be a bad guy or they're so serious here and it almost takes away that part of humanity where I think the smiling brings back the humanity. I agree. So that's why I elected to do that. At the trial, because uh, the two men were arrested for murder, at the trial, Carol Bryant claimed that Emmett grabbed her arm and said, how about a date, baby? He allegedly followed her to the counter then and said, what's the matter, baby? Can you take it? as he grabbed her by the waist. He then said, you needn't be afraid of me, baby, and then said what she said was an unrepeatable word, and I can't find out what that word was. And then allegedly he said, I've been with white women before. Both I just, men were- I just don't believe any of this. I just, even like, what is the likelihood? Say, well, even if he did say this, then he's a kid being a little fucking shit. He right, does not like, deserve to be murdered. Obviously, but like it just sounds very like what I mean. That's that's even if it happened. And yeah, here's the yeah, thing: um, these both men were fully acquitted. And in an interview in 2008, Carol Brain admitted that she falsified her entire statement at the trial. He never said those things. He never did those things. It was all bullshit. And yeah, agreed. Even if he did, even if he like harassed her and touched her without her consent, obviously don't be doing that. But like, do you do you just die? Is is the punishment for like that death just immediate? Yeah. I, it seems this is yep. a kid. This is a kid, and she admitted she made it up. And she admitted she made it up. And, and here's one of the things such... that oh, go on. Here's one of the things that also broke my heart. So I was also reading that the jury voted three times before fully acquitting the brothers. There was only one juror who was the holdout. Two times he voted to convict them. And it was on the third vote. He was pressured into voting to acquit the two men. Wow. By the other people. I just, I just really hate these people and would like to convict. Like, good God. And she admitted it. She admitted she made it up. And so uh, this next point is going to seem a little bit irrelevant at first, but I really want to show the juxtaposition. So in 1960, on July 11th, my favorite book of all time, 
To Kill a Mockingbird by Lee Harper was published. Harper Lee. Yeah, Harper Lee. Sorry. Uh, by Harper Lee was published. It follows the fictional story in Maycomb, Alabama from 1933 to 1955. It's told from the childhood point of view of Jean Louise Finch, also known as Scout, as her nickname is by her father, as her father Atticus is defending a local black man named Tom Robinson who's been accused of sexually assaulting a woman. During the story... Scout gets into fights at school as people in her southern Alabama community turn against her father. She witnesses a lynch mob showing up to the jailhouse wanting to murder Tom Robinson. And at the trial, at one of the climaxes, so the alleged quote, 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 victim is Miela Ewell. And she claims that Tom Robinson came into her house and raped her. Through the trial, Atticus, using very clear physical evidence and testimony, is able to prove that Mayella actually assaulted Tom. She lured him into the house, asking him to chop up a bureau for her, at which point in time she sexually accosted him and tried to force herself on him. When he was trying to pull away, her abusive father, Bob Ewell, came home and Tom fled in fear, and he beat Uella. One of the big things that was pointed out is that as Tom is demonstrating how he chopped up the bureau, he demonstrates very clearly that he is dominantly right-handed, while Bob Ewell is left-handed, and all the damage is to the right side of Mayella's face. Which is if you had been left-handed and swinging, not right-handed. Exactly. The black audience, which is in the top portion of the courthouse watching, as well as Atticus Fitch's children, both Scout and her older brother Jem, believe that this revelation in court should fully acquit Tom Robinson. To their horror, he is convicted of rape. He ends up dying in the story in what is often interpreted as a suicide by cop. Though Atticus tells him you can, we can, you know, try to go to a retrial, we have many options. Tom is shot and killed trying to flee the jailhouse. Uh, the story also introduces the character of Arthur Boo Radley, who is the metaphor of the damage of assumption. Boo Radley throughout the entire story is spoken of in whispers and rumors about being this maniac that lives in the house next door and how he's a psychopath, but he's been anonymously been giving gifts to the children throughout the entire story and at the end of the story actually saves the life of Jeb Fitch when he's attacked by Bob Ewell. So that also is another metaphor that Harper Lee uses. I fucking love this book so much. Yeah. But here's the reason why I bring this up. She shows here that there's a story where they're able to actually like almost prove this is a white woman who accosted a black man and tried to force herself on him and yet they're taking her word that he raped her and then in the set and then in actual reality in the real world this boy is just trying to whistle so he can order some bubble gum without stuttering this woman right. makes up the whole story and he's brutally murdered yeah and it's it's the power that comes with the kind of privilege where you can be a white woman and say this black man looked at me wrong, said the wrong thing, to, like, and that's enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Curtis Jones, who's uh, the cousin of Emma Till, even said, we had the KKK night Riders were like a regular part of everyday life. Uh, a lot of historians, especially in uh, 13, 
talk about the movie um, The Birth of a Nation, which, sure, you've heard of it. Uh, it yeah. is almost this romantic retelling of why the Confederates were going to secede from the Union, and it really vilifies the black man, uh, showing them as these rapists and cannibals and all these terrible things and that was one of the things that really galvanized the kkk to come forward wow. i also love the uh gif that you sent Heath, i'm not get the uh, meme that you sent heath and i earlier this week about the confederate flag and it's like the names that it says and like the, the traitor like the, flag yeah the traitor flag the loser flag right well, and I also, like, recently, it's crazy, but I keep seeing things that are like, hey, everyone, just to be clear, the Confederacy lasted, like, less time than emo music. Like, the Confederacy lasted, like, less time than it took you to, like, <laughs> graduate <laughs> with your master's. Like, so much, the Confederacy was such a short period of time. It's not, it's not your history. It's not your legacy. It's not tradition. It was, like, four years. Like, yeah. get over it. <laughs> I told you that I know one of the granddaughters of Robert E. Lee. Um, probably. Oh, you've probably told me that. <laughs> We've been working together for like maybe like six months, and she is also one of the most amazing and woke individuals that I know. And we're like having lunch one day, uh, her and another coworker, and like it just like comes out that Robert E. Lee is like her grandfather. I was like, wait, hold up. How have we known each other this long? I was like, what was that like, you know, growing up? Because she's also from the South growing up with uh, that kind of heritage and she was like honestly she's like it wasn't like a really big deal it's not like people were like oh it's robert e lee's granddaughter the the, the daughter of the confederacy or whatever she was like it was just you know you read about your grandpa in history books and it was just it was a weird thing to experience uh but even robert e lee after the end of the civil war was like it's over he did not believe in the kkk he was like we tried we lost it's done let's move the fuck on Right. And I'm not going to like get over it. Yeah, I'm not glorifying Robert E. Lee in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, but uh, even this, even the leader of the even this asshole is like get over it. So like you guys, um, I'm really proud of NASCAR for banning the Confederate flag. By the way, I never thought I'd be like really proud of NASCAR for anything, but here we are. Yeah, I've always thought it was really strange, like how many areas of this country are just like okay with the Confederate flag. I'm like, Why? how can you say you're, that's patriotic? It was a time when the country, like when we were trying to split the country up and people were trying to secede. That's like the opposite of patriotism, right? Yeah, yeah. Let Enjoy alone. your loser flag. Um, I right? also wonder if like Robert E. Lee being like, get over it as part of like him just like licking his wounds and being like, can we just stop talking about this? <laughs> guys, I'm already embarrassed enough. It's like, look, I, I know I'm the one who surrendered. Just like, guys, can we just stop? I wonder if that's why the KKK was actually really wearing those hoods. It was just kind of like a when like baseball fans are just like losing for weeks on end and they wear like the paper bags over their head out of shame. <laughs> it's just shame. Yeah, it would be nice if it were shame. Yeah, take pride in your shame. Fucking assholes. Um, yeah. Anyway. On November 22nd of 1963, JFK was assassinated in Dallas. He was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald and the young Democratic president had previously beat Republican Richard Nixon in 1960 for the presidency. JFK was an avowed ally of the civil rights movement. I remember reading a biography about JFK when I was in elementary school and it talked about how J Martin Luther King Jr. actually mourned when JFK died because he was like, we just lost a big ally today. But that also meant that in November of 1963, LBJ Lyndon B. Johnson became the president of the United States. Then in 1964, on July 2nd, the Civil Rights Act was enacted. The act 
previously failed under JFK, but it was brought back with renewed vigor by LBJ and there was actually a backup plan because RFK, Robert Kennedy, put a lot of backing into the Civil Rights Act and there was kind of like a contingency plan that if it failed under LBJ, it would be picked up by RFK. Gotcha. But here's the thing, then suddenly, because that happened in July, in 1964, November, LBJ wins the presidential election. Now, there's something I want to point out here because, well, I'll point out in a second. Then, in 1965, on August 6th, the Voting Rights Act was passed under LBJ, abolishing any restrictions of of prohibition of rights to vote based on race. Here's the thing. Slavery ended in 1964, in January, or in 1864. In 1964, uh, in July, a little over 100 years later, they got the Civil Rights Act, and then it took another year for them to get the right to vote. So slavery may have ended 100 years earlier, 101 years earlier, but it took that amount of time for them to get the right to vote. But also consider that in 1920, white women earned the right to vote. Yeah, do we want to talk about white feminism? Because I've got some fucking things to say about it. <laughs> would, would you like the plat? Would you like the platform? I'll take the conch at this point. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so white feminism, the 1920s um, suffragette movement, it's such a missed fucking opportunity. It's such a, like, white women were like, well, women deserve rights, right? And then we were like, yeah, women deserve rights. Let's look around at each other. Oh, all of us white women, we definitely deserve rights. And women of color were like, we deserve rights too, right? And we're like, sure, but, like, later. Because, like, we're focusing on women right now, and that means white women and if we focus on women and race then it's too many things for us to focus on and it's just like going to dilute our message and then like we won't win people over so if we just have this incremental progress of white women get to vote then like we assure you like we'll give a shit about your rights at some point too like you just have to wait your turn or at least that's my interpretation Yeah, it's kind of like, we're just going to say one step at a time, as in we get the first step. And then we'll we'll get to your step later. Yes. There's uh, a great documentary right now on Netflix called uh, She's Beautiful When She's Angry. And Mm. it's about the the rise of feminism in the 1960s and 70s. And it really explores, uh, you know, like everything from like bra burning to everything. But it does talk about the separation of white women's rights to black women's rights to even uh, LGBTQ women's rights and how like there were entire parts of the movement that were being ignored because they're like we need to put like the best foot forward and the best foot forward is like rich cisgendered white women so but that isn't every fucking woman and and it's a something that plagues feminism today too it's like choice feminism where it's like as long as we all have choices and it's like well we don't is the thing like structurally like the inequalities exist to where people don't like not everyone actually does have these choices that you're so excited about so yeah so yeah, that's why I put in the uh, right to vote because it's like, it's just, are you fucking kidding me? It took us this long to give all black Americans the right to vote. And even then, like, 
as we've seen in Georgia this past week, even then, there are things that are being systematically done to suppress the black vote. And we'll also get into that, too. And we're trying to not have mail-in voting. And I'm like, why? If you we can mail me my driver's license. Right. Like, it, some states just do it. And it's fine. You don't have to take a day off of work. It's also discriminatory for wage-based earners because then you have to ask a day off of work and miss out on a day's pay or use PTO or a sick day. Like, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have a whole rant on this, too. Okay. We'll get to a lot of it. Okay. So then, uh, in 1970, uh, Richard Nixon wins the presidential election. Things are about to get real. <laughs> um, also, I should actually touch base on some really big milestones that we did not discuss. Um, but we are not ignoring. We're just talking about the timeline of systematic uh, oppression. Uh, so, give me my numbers. Okay, so on February 21st of 1965, Malcolm X was executed in New, in New York. He was assassinated. It... This pisses me off. It was blamed on other Islamics for his death. They were pretty much sold it as a the blacks eating the blacks. It was said that... Uh, Elijah Muhammad, who was the former Islamic leader that uh, Malcolm, well, he is passed away now, but he died as the leader. It said that he ordered the death of Malcolm X, which has been disputed repeatedly by higher members of that movement. Yeah, I feel like if we know anything about Cointerplo, it was probably the United States government, but. Yeah, and uh, in the Netflix documentary, which is a series called The Assassination of Malcolm X, they talk about how there were pretty much the police looked like they knew what was going to happen that day. Like almost everything was orchestrated to know like who's going to do what, who's going to be where. And then on April 4th of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. The official record says that James Earl Ray was his executioner. Uh, Ray died in prison from kidney failure. The rumored true assassin was Lloyd Jowers, who claims that he worked with uh, the FBI, the government, and the mafia to orchestrate the execution of MLK Jr. And in fact, there have been former informants of the FBI and the federal government who say they believe this theory, but all FBI files on the assassination of MLK Jr. are still sealed until 2027. That's interesting. Um, I That makes sense. But I think we can extrapolate from the files that aren't sealed about like the Black Panthers and the way that the FBI handled that. <laughs> they, they tried to use different race groups to create division in the United States and to fracture and to um, keep people from uniting. Yeah, the things that we've learned from all the documents and the tapes that Richard Nixon held onto are terrifying. Even the things that uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, that survived, because his secretary tried to destroy everything after his death, but they were things mm. that were missed. Um, Nixon got his hands on a lot of those. So in 1970, Nixon wins the election, and uh, there's this terrible but very interesting uh, bit of information that comes from Nixon advisor uh, John Elrickman. He explains that at the time, the biggest opponents to Richard Nixon was the civil rights movement and anti-Vietnam protesters. This is an actual quote that uh, they actually have it shown in the documentary 13. <sighs> and what he says is, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily we could distribute, uh, we could disrupt those communities. 
He talks about, you know, raiding their places, arresting their leaders. He then further says, did we know we were lying about those drugs? Of course we did. So it's not about the danger of the drug. It's about using that drug to associate with a community so you have reason to persecute and oppress them. Yeah, and uh, the documentary 13th also really showcases how Richard Nixon's like whole platform was. And this is going to sound a little bit familiar to something that we've been hearing a lot lately. A law and order presidency. Yikes. Yeah. But here's the thing. In 1974, on August 9th, Richard Nixon actually had to resign because of everything following the Watergate scandal. Because it turned out that he was a dirty piece of shit that we were able to finally fucking catch. Hey! Yay! It worked! We kicked a president out for being a dirty piece of shit! We've done it, guys! We can do it again! But here's the thing. He was succeeded by Vice President Gerald Ford, who assumed the presidency after him. On April 5th, the Chemical Weapons Convention and the then Geneva Convention, and actually let me back up for a second. So we say Geneva Convention. There are actually a number of Geneva Conventions. Essentially, the Geneva Conventions are in place to construct the modern rules of war. Like if you've seen the movie The Patriot, they talk about the rules of war, which is, you know, if someone's in uniform, you can only like do certain things to them, blah, blah, blah. These are the modern rules of war. We actually recently had one, I want to say in 2017 or 2018, discussing cyber warfare in the modern age. So we are adding and adjusting the Geneva Conventions at all times based on the evolution of war. And is that's that, um, is that out of the UN or the Geneva Convention is technically a separate entity that is agreed upon is pretty much like the uh, the Paris Accords. Okay. It's yeah, not necessarily governed by the UN, but it's signed upon as an agreement by multiple countries. The US okay. being one of those countries. Of course, we pulled out of the accords cuz we're fucking assholes. Anyway, April 5th, 1975, uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Geneva Convention states that tear gas is banned for use against Emily combatants in war as it classifies as a chemical weapon. Gerald Ford, however, successfully argued for an exception to the ruling, arguing for its use as a non-lethal option for rioting prisoners of war. This allowed a loophole in the Geneva Convention and allowed extended measures allotted to the United States regarding the use of tear gas through the Chemical Weapons Convention as a non-lethal means for local riots and protesters. So it was intended only for prisoners of war, but because it was made an exception, that exception got extrapolated to many more situations. Yeah, so the Geneva Convention said that we can only use it for prisoners of war and then the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, allowed the addendum that we can use it on rioting populaces. But for riots, not protests, riots. Big difference there. I don't know what the difference is. It's hard for me to tell if a cop is in charge of, is in, trying to protect you at a protest and the cop breaks a window, maybe that's now a riot. It's just, it's all very fuzzy to me. Maybe if a cop pushes over a 75-year-old man and causes him to bleed out of his ear, that's a riot. Or is it just a peaceful protest? Anyway, so I read through all the addendums because that's just who I am as a person. And this is what I have extrapolated. And it really hurts my soul. The use of tear gas 
is always banned in times of war, but can be used as a non-lethal alternative for domestic riots. In the event of an antebellum, which means the pre- pretty much the prelude to a war, a civil war or a civil unrest, tear gas can be deployed on U.S. soil with executive approval. So as long as we think it's a threat to the existing social order, basically? So like anytime, really? And let's break that down even more. So the belief is, because that our constitution should be able to protect us from an unjust government. So the reason they put in this addendum is because it was like, well, they have rights in their own country that if they're, that says, you know, if their government is corrupt or wrong, that they have the right to overthrow that government. So your own constitution, your own national law should protect you. That being said, the UN often recognizes the elected presidency of the United States as the official presidency. So let's say hypothetically, this broke into a civil war tomorrow. That's worst case scenario, highly dead will happen. But let's say we broke into a civil war tomorrow. That means that technically the powers that be is the executive office. And we could be classified if we were against that executive office as violent instigators and rioters. Therefore, even if we are firing shots back and forth and it's technically a civil war, they would still be allowed to deploy tear gas as long as the president okays it. So we don't have the power to overthrow a tyrannical government. No. That that government has the power to quash our resistance. Yeah, and it's essentially the UN seems like you guys should like sort out your own shit enough to like so you don't abuse this, except for we never sorted out our shit enough to not abuse it. Yeah, and here we are. So that was the terrifying one of the terrifying truths that I learned. Whew, never gonna get worse. I know. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected the 40th president of the United States. Spans on Nixon's war on crime and creates the war on drugs. Over the next several decades, <laughs> droves of Americans are arrested for possession. So, we're also going to break down another thing. Around the time of the civil rights movement, the baby boomers' babies, they're starting to grow up. They are becoming adolescents and adults, and there's suddenly a big surge on the populace. Therefore, crime rates rise. More people means more crimes. Proportions may ma- remain the same, but the totals are just going to increase. So, for a government that's disagreeing with the civil rights movement, it's very easy to say, well, you see, we're giving black people rights, and now we're getting all these riots, and all this this crime is increasing. So then you say, we're going to go after the crime, because now we've implied that it's all the black people doing it, and we're claiming that they're doing all these drugs, so now we're going to arrest all the black people. (sighs) Uh, There's also a documentary I highly recommend, which is available for free on Amazon Prime right now, called How to Make Money on the War on Drugs. It was actually Heath, my husband, that cued me into it. His friend Miles uh, told him about it when it was playing in a local theater and asked him to attend it with him. And Heath came home. I've never seen him so angry in his life. Some of the things that... I like woke Heath. Yeah, I love woke Heath. Um, But one of the things that they point out is, let's say I'm a part of a DAA raid team. And I think you, Lacey... Or a drug dealer. So I'm raiding your house. While I'm there, if you just happen to have like a twenty laying around, I can confiscate that twenty and oh, that yeah, money. Like the and there's that a, money. Yeah, there's a term. I, I don't remember the name of the term, but I can take that money. And now that is part of my budget. So anything they find laying around. And uh, one of the things that the documentary shows is there's actually a guy who intentionally uh, sets up trap houses where he would put up cameras and then call in for police raids. And you see like cops just like throwing around like little bags of things. Now, I do want to say, I do understand the argument of not all cops, more than enough cops, more than too many cops. And it doesn't matter because 
if it's the cops who are in power who are doing the wrong thing, then it doesn't matter how many good cops coming up into the academy and brand new people. Like, they're going to be indoctrinated into the same system of people abusing their power and people planting drugs on other people and seizing property for no reason. So, like, even if there are a good amount of good cops, they'll have that beaten out of them. Yeah. And then here, continuing on the same line of war on drugs in Reagan and his policies, this was a recording that was taken off the record from his campaign advisor, Lee Atwater. And you can actually hear this whole recording in the documentary 13. And he says, In other words, you start out, in, and now y'all are quoting me. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Wow. That it really brings me back to the Civil War, like using economic reasons um, and getting people invested in the money side of things and the abstract side of things and that it's our culture and lifestyle and not like, well, it's slavery though. Like, yeah. And then uh, another thing 13th points out is that in, then in 1994, uh, the first of the three strikes law is enacted into law, meaning for your third felonious crime, you could have a lifelong incarceration. So it's what they call, you know, three strikes and you're out. Here's the thing. A lot of drug possession is considered felonious. Yeah. So now we're going to get into part three, hard math and painful facts. And then we can just have a breakdown discussion and talk about whatever you want while we sob angrily. So uh, there's a quote uh, by Barack Obama on July 14th. 2015 that said the United States makes up 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's global prison population. So I actually Jesus did a fact check on that Christ. and I actually did the math. I actually downloaded and went through the full reports by the Bureau of Justice for the most recent up-to-date prison statistics and findings in the United States of America. I used the actual numbers. I did the actual math, went through the actual Excel spreadsheets, and I can show my fucking work. So Some quality research right there. So if anyone challenges me on this, come fucking at me, bro. I like it. And we, as always, we post all of our sources, uh, links to everything on our website under each particular episode. So you can go there and check out all the links for yourself. Dude, this might end up being like its own page of the website, all my word <laughs> references. Okay, so the United States makes up 4.3 approximately of the global population. This is actually as of yesterday's census information. Um, the United States makes up approximately 21% of the global prison population. Still very bad. So of all the Ooh. people in prison in the world, 21% approximately are in America. Land, land of the fucking free, am I right? Oh my god. There are approximately 2.2 million Americans incarcerated or under a form of correctional supervision. This includes people on house arrest or parole. So approximately 29% of the U.S. prison population is white. Approximately 38% of the prison population is black. But then I decided I'm going to do the hard math to contextualize that. So if you break it down, there are approximately 300... Uh, 327.2 uh, million Americans as of 2018. 
238,856,856 of those Americans are white, making up 73% of the population. 14,554,400 are black, making up about 12.7% of the population. If you weigh the total number of population against the total number of persons incarcerated, and you do the math, that means 1.9% of white Americans are imprisoned and serving a sentence of one year or more, and 4.2% of black Americans are imprisoned and serving a sentence of one year or more. That's really disproportionate. Those are convictions. So it's like we are, they're already a much smaller percentage of the population. You already, they're already just a 12.7%. And of that 12.7%, 4.2% are in prison. That's horrifyingly unjust. And so and there's something I want to really like point out here. Um, a lot of people talk about, or the, uh, a lot of white privilege assholes talk about, it's like, well, blacks have opportunities. Now. Like they can go to school, they can vote and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but let's look at this. Their great grandparents, uh, if they come from families that their ancestors were slaves, their great grandparents were slaves. After that, they probably became sharecroppers or were in Jim Crow South for their grandparents where they still had restrictions, they didn't have the right to vote. Their parents were probably a part of the first generation that had the right to vote, and that was during the Civil Rights Movement, and that was around the time that all these mass incarcerations began, that during the 1970s when Nixon started cracking down more on crime, and then you have the 1980s where the war on drugs begins, where that really ups the ante. And so you're talking about a population whose elderly population, the people that are supposed to guide their youth, have been stolen from them. They were stolen 100 years ago from their native countries, from their native land, and now they're uh, now their adults are being stolen again and taken into prison populations, and their rights are continuing to be snuffed out. So yeah, technically on paper they quote have all the same fucking rights but also if your grandparents were sharecroppers and your parents are probably the first generation to be making their own independent money you don't have the option of having education that the white uh, people had you didn't have the op uh, option of having apprenticeships that white people had so you're not making nearly as much money um one of my favorite quotes which i learned from the movie ever after is from the book utopia where mm -hmm. they talk about it's like if a person is born into poverty and their first education is crime. Based on how you put together your society, how can you punish that person for that crime if that's all they know and all they've ever been taught? The system is stacked against them systematically for generations. Yeah, and, and there's something... Yeah, that, yeah uh, sorry to interrupt you. There's just something really like... Um, we don't talk about generational wealth as an advantage that people have, but ha having had your great-grandparents be slaves and not being allowed to own property or vote or anything, like, then there's no opportunity to build generational wealth. Then, you know, young black people don't have necessarily families who are able to help them buy houses or, you know, there are all these, like, things that we take for granted, like, generational wealth. Yeah. Well, like, one of the Jim Crow laws is that in order to register to vote, you have to own property. If you're, if you just stopped being a slave, like, 20 years ago, and you're a sharecropper, you were living on somebody else's land, you don't own property. Therefore, and there are structures in place to keep you from owning property. Also, you know who also can't vote? Felons! I was about to say, that was my next point, was like, oh, okay, so let's criminalize people, make drugs a felony, and then felons can't vote. 
So that takes care of that. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of employers, like they ask you on your application for almost every job, uh, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Mm-hmm. And you fill that in. And when you think of felony, like right out the gate, you're like, oh my God, this person's like a murdering rapist who like beat the shit out of a bunch of people. And it's like, but you don't understand that a felony can be just the possession of a schedule one or schedule two drug, which includes things such as marijuana and heroin. In Texas, having any amount of um, marijuana concentrate is still a felony. Any, like a vape cartridge is a felony in Texas. Anything that's concentrated. Exactly. And and it's even said, you know, straight from the administration is like we crack down hard on drugs, marijuana and heroin. We associate the marijuana with the hippies. We associate the heroin with the black communities. So we target those communities. Now they're in prison. Now they can't vote. Now they don't have those fucking rights anymore. Most convicted prisoners are convicted on plea deals and do not face court time. (laughs) There's a good argument made in the documentary, The 13th, that you can't have every person go to trial because it would just shut the system down, which is true. We have so many people that... And we have so many things that we've criminalized unnecessarily that the system is bloated with processing stupid bullshit nonsense moral crimes like drugs. Yeah. And oh, I have stats on that too. We're gonna we're gonna get to that because like I just don't think it's a people problem. Like I think if we just like gave a shit about like violent crimes or like taking property from people who like really need that property, then like that would be a thing. But we're like, hmm, once you smoked weed, yeah. <laughs> and then like so you have these people that come from uh, impoverished areas, lack of education, lack of guidance because they're parents and grandparents have been systematically oppressed or thrown in prison for bullshit fucking reasons and then you have a prosecutor coming in saying well you can try to fight this in court and maybe get like a really tiny sentence or I can just make a deal with you right now and you're locked down for three years and for someone who doesn't know what their options are who already has a system that's built against them it almost seems like a fucking olive branch when they're like three years in prison how's that sound but it's not an olive branch it's a police baton they're beating you with but they're only they're just using words instead right Whew. okay so approximately 49 percent of american prisoners have a one year or more conviction on a drug-related charge what 49 percent okay yeah so it's drug charges so if we just like Look, I'm radical, so I know this is a controversial position, but like if we just decriminalized everything and focused on treatment, that would relieve uh, like half of half of the courts of like half of the cases. Yeah, and so remember there're going to be some overlap in some of these things because it could be they might be in for a conviction of both a drug uh conviction and uh, a violent offense or They're another also type outlined. of offense outlawing drugs means that you're more likely to get into violence obtaining or selling drugs, right? Yeah. But yeah. I well, right. So, so remember that 49%, um, approximately 40% of American prisoners have a one year or more conviction classified as a public order. That includes things such as um, immigration and weapons charges. Okay. And something that they just classify as other, but it's a public order for incarceration that's 40% have a conviction of one year or more for public order. I don't even know what public order is. The public order is essentially me like for 
if you have a weapons charge, because you're not allowed to carry like a certain type of weapon, it doesn't mean that you had intent to use it on a crowd, but it's illegal to possess it. So for the protection of the public, you're incarcerated, in short. Oh, okay. Okay. Like, we would just do that to someone trying to immigrate here? Yeah, because uh, according to the law, they're here to steal all of the rights and jobs and things. <sighs> that just makes me want to cry. Okay. Anyway, now you're going to get even more pissed off. Approximately 16%, only 16% of American prisoners have a conviction of one year or more for a violent crime, including assaults, murder, and sex crimes. Which is, I would argue, what we should be focusing much more on. Like, sure, theft is a thing, but like, uh, like hurting people, right? Yeah, it's like when 16% is like the worst of the worst, but... What are we doing locking up all these other people for exactly. petty shit? And we're gonna Who get into cares? that too. And then approximately 6% of American prisoners have a conviction of one year or more for what are considered property-related crimes. So this includes uh, theft, fraud, insurance fraud, things like that. Which, like, if we're being honest, in a big city, um, they don't care. They, they don't have the resources. They can't do anything about. My car yeah. was hit a couple of times by hit and runs while it was parked across the street from me. And the police officer that we called and that we talked to was basically like, sorry about you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, so I'm going to show you on camera. These are the actual numbers. These are where I got wow. my totals. That's so you a... can see the big disparity where the numbers jump. Yeah, those are the actual numbers. And you can see on the other column, you see V is for violence, P for property, D for drugs, and then P for public order. And then for other, it was just 600. So you can see for yourself. I think we you should uh, post a picture of that sheet. I think like showing your work is a cool thing in this instance. Yeah, I think I'm going to both uh, show my work and I'm also going to probably upload the documentation from the Bureau of Justice to our website so people can review it for themselves. That's so awesome. if people feel like I'm just making up these numbers, I'm going to I'm going to call. I'm going to go ahead and show you I'm going to show you my cards. Ooh, okay. So the DEA classifies a Schedule 1 drug, and now remember, Schedule drugs are on uh, what I like to call the DEFCON system. So the lower the number, the worse it is. Like, DEFCON 1 is the worst. DEFCON 5 means that you're actually safe. Oh yeah, this is a schedule where marijuana and heroin are... Um, like, heroin, I think, is actually safer than marijuana because you can use opiate derivatives for medicine, but marijuana is not recognized as having any medical use. The DEA classifies Schedule 1 drugs, the highest level and felonious to possess, as heroin. So it's actually Schedule 1 now. Heroin, oh, good. LSD, marijuana, ecstasy, and peyote. I would like to know who's ever died of an overdose of marijuana or LSD or peyote. Because I, that, to me, seems relevant. I mean, I would say, like, the most inhalation damage from marijuana has to come from just that inhalation. But we allow cigarettes. And there's actual medicinal purposes to the ingredients in marijuana where there are actually no medicinal uses for nicotine use. But I digress. Schedule 2 drugs include cocaine, methamphetamine, methadone, hydromorphone, Vicodin, Demerol, Oxycontin, Fentanyl, Dextrine, Adderall, and Ritalin. Oh, I understand, because companies can make money off of those drugs, so by necessity, those drugs are less dangerous, because we couldn't sell them to you if they would kill you like marijuana does, right? Yeah, and so, like, once you get into, like, some Schedule 2 drugs, and then once you get to, like, Schedule 3 and Schedule 4 and Schedule 5, it's all pretty much, like, these are things that your doctor will prescribe you, but if you have it above X milligrams, then it's bad. How is meth? 
How is meth not as bad as pot? What the fuck? What the actual fuck? You can die. You can just die. You lose yeah. all your teeth. You go crazy. You'll pick your skin off. Like, it is so much. Anyway, look, I'm on a soapbox and I'll step right back. One stat that actually uh, I remember you and Lee pointed out to me were that the drugs for crack and cocaine were written differently in certain territories. And according to the DEA, according to the federal government, they are classified the same. They're both Schedule II drugs. However, consider this. When you think of, we've talked about this before, when you think about cocaine, number one, I think of the 80s. And number two, I think of rich white women that drink clear alcohol. When you think of crack, you think about crackheads. <laughs> you picture the Dave Chappelle characters like scratching his neck and be like, he got any more of that. Right, which is by design from our government. Yeah. And so if you're equating that it's the, and uh, cocaine is much more expensive than crack is, and then you have this huge poverty line. And then on top of that, because it's divided along the property line, the white people who are classically the rich people, they can afford the lawyers to fight it. They can afford to go to court. If you're in an impoverished neighborhood and you get busted for crack possession, you probably can only get a public defender who's just going to recommend that you just take the plea deal because they're so overwhelmed by the system. And, and that's even if you get a lawyer. And here's a point of um, where we can be united in a way. And I think that a lot of times poor white people are some of the people who have the hardest time accepting the notion of privilege, right? Because in our country, money and class is tied into privilege and mm -hmm. there is such a thing as class privilege. And so obviously what we're talking about with social justice is very heavily that people of color are penalized just for being people of color. But there is a certain amount of truth to the idea that you have to have money to be able to fight a court case against you. And that not having money problem isn't solely limited to communities mm -hmm. of color. I think that's a point where we can get buy-in from potential white allies who don't understand, well, I grew up poor, so clearly I don't have privilege. And it's like, you don't in that area. You are absolutely mm -hmm. right. Like, in, in the realm of class, you don't have privilege and that's a legitimate thing what we're saying is some people don't have that class privilege and also don't have the race privilege on top of it yeah um i would like to point out to those uh poor white americans because uh, actually heath grew up very impoverished he was in and out of the foster system for most of his life but when heath walks into a store to do shopping if he hasn't like showered in a few days or shaved people don't follow him around the store if right. he's walking down the street people don't move out of his way black americans right. can't say that i mean I, I know that we've all been you know victims of assumption in one way shape or form but that is every fucking day. When being I was treated like a criminal. Just being treated like a criminal for existing in your skin. Yeah, when I was a teenager, I remember being followed around stores because I was a teenager with funky colored hair, wearing weird clothes and like spiked wristbands and shit like that. Which was all a choice. Now, exactly. That was a choice. Now that I'm an adult woman, I just walk around in, like jeans and a hoodie and there's like, oh, look, just a, that's a white woman who smiles a lot. So she has to be a nice person. And it's like, I could stab you in the face and you wouldn't see it coming. Here's a bit of my privilege. I feel free all of the time in Seattle smoking weed openly on the street. This is not legal in Seattle. Weed is legal, but you like public consumption is still not legal. And yeah. I have zero fear of yeah. that being a thing that I get taken to jail for or violated in some way for or a ticket. Like I feel like a police officer at most would ask me to put it out. Like at most. But I have never once had anyone 
hassle me about it. And I, I know that's a privilege thing. I also exercise that privilege partly because of my disability. So here we are, <laughs> intersectional identities. Yeah, so great discussion all around. More stats that are gonna piss us off. Go on. So another thing that I do again wanna stress, the Geneva Convention is only applicable to wartime practices. So it's really sad that we are often equating them to day-to-day injustices. And that our standards for war, where we're trying to kill our enemy, are somehow higher than our standards for interacting with our own populace who we're meant to be protecting and pr- like promoting the pursuit of happiness in. Yeah. So um, I actually am going to post this on the website. I have a picture that is the all the article, which are uh, articles relating the treatment of prisoners of war per the Geneva Convention in 1929. Okay. And I also have a quote that I want to be posting that says, prisoners of war have more rights than children in abusive homes. But here are going to be some of the highlights. Oh God, that hurts already. Okay. (laughs) Prisoners of war are not held as a form of punishment, but rather as a form of protection during wartime activities. It's more or less, we're holding you as a combatant, but you're not right. here to be punished. Prisoners of war can be prosecuted for war crimes following hostilities, but cannot be prosecuted for wartime actions. So just because you shot another soldier or in war, like an enemy soldier, you can't be prosecuted for that. Oh, like the police with qualified immunity, where when they're in their role of their job and they're carrying out a duty, they can't actually be personally held accountable for that. It's the city that has to uh, field any lawsuits about anything they've done while they're on the job. Like that, right? Prisoners of war must, and this is the exact verbiage, be treated humanely in all circumstances. And like, look, I'm not... I don't think I, I want us to under I want people to listening to understand our tone here. You're not advocating for abusing prisoners of war. <laughs> no, I am not. I'm just saying it's like these are this is the verbiage for prisoners of war, enemy combatants that are trying to kill other members of our military, and we can't even grant the same rights to our normal citizens who have at worst what carried an ounce of weed. Jesus, anyway. or not? You know, yeah. Go yeah. On. Also, prisoners of war are to be protected from murder, torture, and cruel, humiliating, and degrading treatment. By the way, Guantanamo Bay has pretty much shit all over the Geneva Convention. Yeah, I was about to say I'm pretty sure we know of multiple instances where we violated that in, you know, in the name of our sovereign right to label anyone we want a terrorist. Prisoners of war are to be released immediately following the end of hostilities. Now I'm going to go on like my sidebar for Guantanamo Bay. The reason we still have people in Guantanamo Bay is because they're part of the war on terrorism. And you can say hey, this guy was arrested because we think that he was related to Al-Qaeda, and even though Al-Qaeda is not as strong as it was, now people from Al-Qaeda are now a part of ISIS or one of these other terrorist bands. And so because hostilities technically never ended, then we technically don't have to release them. We release we them out of our own, gil- good, uh, our own goodwill. I'm disgusted by that. Yeah. Uh, there, there are so many things. Like, one of them is that... Uh, Prisoners of war cannot or should are not allowed to engage in labors that they are physically unfit to do. Oh, oh, wow! So prisoners of war are like treated better than just like the general labor population of the United States, where it doesn't really matter what you can or can't do because you have to. Yeah. Cool. Now we're going to get even more into prisons. The United States defines a private prison as a third-party facility that is known as a for-profit institution. The more prisoners in a private prison and the longer they can hold them, 
the more money they get from the government. So more prisoners equals more money. So we have a whole industry, a whole private industry around locking people up for stupid shit because we can make money off of it. Companies can also get tax breaks for hiring prisoners for physical labor positions, such as uh, highway cleanup, uh, working fields, things like that. So you get a tax break for using prison slave labor? Yeah. I mean, it's not slave labor, right? They're paid. They're paid almost nothing, but they are paid. It's not enough to do anything when they get out, and they're still going to be labeled a former convict, but, like, they... It's not, it's not nothing. I mean, slave owners, look, they provided, like, room and board, and they, they sometimes fed their, like, you know, it's not nothing. Continuing with this, I also have um, an article that I'm going to share on the website that'll be in our references. Um, and the first picture you see is of a field in the South filled with prisoners working the fields. And this is in the 2000s. It looks like it could be a colorized photo from before the Civil War. It's, yeah. Additionally, oh, it's so much worse. Oh, it's, it's so bad. It's just so bad all around. Many prisoners need to work for privileges such as phone calls, food, and basic needs. Oh, those sound like needs, not privileges. <laughs> yeah. There is no incentive to reform your cash flow, nor is there incentive to prevent prison crimes as they will elongate sentences. So why would I stop my prisoners from rioting, from stabbing each other, or anything. Because we could just make more money off of them hurting each other. Yeah. I mean, I would, like, as as somebody in prison administration, when you just be on the sidelines chanting, chanting fight, fight, fight. Like, right. It's like, why, why would you even bother reforming someone? So you have, like, these half-assed reform programs because you don't really want to reform them because if you reform them, they're not going to commit crimes, they're not going to come back to prison, and then you're going to lose your cash cow. There's this insidious thing also about um, thinking of... It, it goes back to the job application thing, which is, like, thinking of people as criminals and non-criminals. And, like, those are two categories of people, and they're fundamentally different when, really, like, the difference is circumstance between criminal and non-criminal in many mm. cases. Yeah. Approximately 8% of the United States prison population are serving their sentences in private prisons. Who? The complete say their names list for just the total numbers between 2015 and today is 109. Those are just the names we know from the last five years. Those are just the names we know. That total is not even a drop in the bottomless wealth of human blood we can never wash our hands clean of. Discuss. Uh, I think you discussed. I think yeah. I was like, I think you left the T off the end of that discuss there. <laughs> um, I do want to say I know it's slightly off topic, but in the interest of intersectional feminism and not only discussing one topic but discussing the intersection of all topics, I'm going to throw in here another um, labor thing that I learned in recent past. Just in addition to what we're talking about, because why not? Um, which is that another exception for minimum wage, in addition to prison labor is uh, people with disabilities. Yeah. We can legally pay disabled people less than the minimum wage. But we're doing them a favor. We're giving them a job. And I used to work in, um, in Texas. I worked for a company that was like the county mental health company. And yeah, we um, 
promoted, we would go to the state supported living center and we would talk to people about getting into um, private group homes, which was generally seen as like it was based out of legislation for people to live in the least restrictive environment. So I still stand by that. And I think that was a good thing. But the we also would quote unquote, help people get jobs or hook them up with job resources. And that was frequently working on campus at the state supported living center for people with disabilities uh, in a workshop or at a diner or whatever um, for much less than minimum wage. And those for me as a young recent college graduate without any social justice education, I was like, oh, it was an opportunity because no one would hire them otherwise because we would just discriminate against them. So it's good that these people have a chance to plug into you know the work world and get a sense of self-esteem from that and like it may it breaks my heart to look back on that and to think about that because how horrifying to be like just because you're disabled even if you're doing an equal amount of labor to a non-disabled person we can pay you less because of that you're less of a person so you don't need to get paid as much as the other person And so that's kind of where I was going with this sorting people into criminals and non-criminals because once we give people a negative label like disabled or criminal, then we are, it's so much easier to dehumanize them and devalue them and to see them as less than and see them as lucky for getting even half of the opportunities we get. Is the benefit more going to like the company than to him? And almost, almost certainly because there's programs to incentivize hiring prisoners there have to be programs to incentivize hiring people with disabilities and getting tax breaks and legally paying them less. Yeah, in one of my previous HR jobs, we would hire people with disabilities and we could get a tax break on them. And uh, I remember I remember one time, in this case, it, it broke my fucking heart. We had already had one employee with a disability. Whew. So we had a, an interview come in and it was another boy with a disability and he came in with his mom. And I remember interviewing them and I was like, we can hire this guy as a bagger. Um, And one thing I can't say about this company is that they did pay uh, individuals with disabilities the same wage as those with non-disability for the same position. Just got a tax break on it. And I was thinking, you know, we really need baggers. They can do the job of a bagger. It's, you know, not that hard. Right. Uh, We can probably hire this kid. And uh, I went through the interview and his mom just looked so exhausted. She looked just like so defeated, like here we are again. And after they left, because I didn't get the approval to make the job offer, so I had to say we'll be in contact. The store director came up to me and was like, but do we need another one of those people working for us? And I was like, that sounds like discrimination to me. But I didn't have the go-ahead to hire this person. So I had to reach out to them and reject the application. And you could almost tell like when the mom left, she knew her son wasn't going to get the job. Because she'd been there before. She'd been in that exact seat so many times. And how many of those conversations happen every single day at employers across the country? Do we really need any more of those people fill in the blank what those people might be? Yeah, that was around the time that I was already deciding, like, I cannot do this job anymore. I cannot do this job for this company anymore. Uh, Understandable. So uh, one of my favorite parts, uh, well, it was a really uh, eye-opening part of uh, the Central Park Five show, also by (laughs) Ava DuVernay, when they see us now, is when he's trying to fill out the paperwork to get a job outside of prison since he 
is a convict. Now that he's a felon. And she explains, like, you have to fill out this form that says that you can only work during these hours. And you fill out this form so that other guy who works here, who's also a felon, you two aren't on the same shift because they don't want felons working together because you, you know, might conspire together on things. And it's just, like, all the hoops you have to wow. jump through once you get out on parole. It's like, you have to have a job to work X amount of hours. There are certain dues that you still need to pay back. And then how the system is so stacked against you from getting that job and earning that paycheck on top of having to find a place to live. It's like, how are you supposed to pay rent and then all these dues and then all these things on top of everything while you have this felon stamp on you and most places won't hire a felon when i um, was at a previous company we used to do background checks and we uh there were certain things that could flag in your background check that can prevent you from getting hired one of which was a criminal weapons possession like some made sense to me like have you ever been on a terrorist watch list <laughs> Or did your social security number that you put on your application not match what your actual social security number is? Sure. Like, shit like that made sense. I'm like, well, that's clearly fraud. But it was like, there were certain, like, offenses where I'm like, oh, where, where do we draw the line on what kind of felony I can't hire you for? Right. And even with the terrorist watch list, I'm like, is that all the members of the KKK? Or is that just, like, brown people? It's just the Black Panthers. Yeah. That's all it so. is. Oh, oh my god, so, yeah, um, but actually, so, uh, Central Park 5, another example of, it has to be black people being the bad people, it happened in 1989, where, uh, five young black men were arrested after the rape of a woman named Trish, uh, Trisha in Central Park. This was at the end of April. On May 1st, Donald Trump paid for an ad in the New York Times that took up a whole page arguing to bring back the death penalty and you can watch YouTube videos of him talking about how he hates these people that committed this crime. I also have a picture of that full ad that I will put on our website. Methinks the rapist doth protest too much. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and uh, I even have pictures of uh, Donald Trump hanging out with some of these assholes that I quoted earlier, including uh, there's, I think I have a picture of him with like Lee Atwater, who was the one I was like, uh, you can say the N-word and then you can't say the N-word, so this is what you say instead. I also have a picture. Grab him by the pussy. I have a picture of Lee Atwater sitting with Roger Stone and Paul Manafort. So I'm just like, wow. hmm, look, all these fucking assholes know each other. Uh, and I didn't even get into things like... Uh, uh, Alec, which is uh, essentially like a country club for rich people who like to in uh, put together laws to incarcerate all the black people and make more money off the prison system. I didn't even get into that shit. And so, and the fact that weighing this against the Geneva Conventions, which again is intended for times of war, the people that are authorized to kill each other have more rights than everyday citizens in America. And that is disgusting, and we should all be ashamed. Amen. Um, yeah, that's all I have. I mean, I'm sure I could find other things to rant about, because like I said, it's a bottomless bowl of information, but yeah. Um, regarding regarding privilege, there's a couple resources I want to also add to the website. Um, there's a quiz that I took recently that I keep seeing go around, and it's not exhaustive, but it is interesting, which is like the How Privileged Are You checklist. And you just answer a series of questions about whether or not 
you've ever experienced any of the consequences of these things based on your identities. And it's kind of eye-opening. So there's that that I'll send you. And then there's also um, Peggy Macintosh's The Invisible Knapsack, which is basically like a metaphor for privilege and how like you have all these tools and gifts and things that you don't know that you have because when you have privilege, it's invisible to you. And when you don't have privilege, it really stands out to you how other people have it. Yeah. I mean, so I, I'll send those to you. I think the biggest thing that you and I can ever talk about is like the limitations that we've had as women um, and uh, not being a totally straight woman uh, as a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as a bisexual, I did have a lot of struggle with that identity and accepting myself, um, but I haven't had the everyday systematic oppression. I also want to point out that it was a the murder of a black trans woman that led to today's pride movements. It was it was that black trans woman throwing bricks at police officers. Yeah, because <laughs> she's also, a. Okay. I can Luckily, picture her face. I can, oh that big broad smile. That smiling picture, like we said. Marsha Johnson. I thought Marcia it was Johnson. Johnson. I had a I had a chemistry teacher who I love and am friends with on Facebook named Marsha Johnson. <laughs> so yeah. I second guessed myself. But yeah, she had that beautiful big broad smile and allegedly she committed suicide. This happy person who was almost the mother of gay youth in New York and inspirations for so many people. She killed herself after all this. Thank you, Marsha Johnson. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that for me, being a woman is definitely like the one of the main marginalized identities that I have, although that ha for me has been superseded by being disabled because mm -hmm. uh, I see the way that the workforce is like, oh, you can't sit in an office around everybody else for 40 hours a week. Well, then you don't get a job. Sorry about you. Uh, <laughs> and it's been really fascinating with COVID to see how, oh, lots of places that could never be work from home now are by necessity. And so maybe there are some disability rights that we could try to obtain out of that because yeah. not everyone can go to an office for 40 hours and like you know as a straight passing white woman I understand I do have a lot of privilege but I think that something that's given me increased compassion for people who have disadvantages is having this disability thrust upon me and having to navigate things where it's just like oh no some people legitimately think that if you don't have a job you're stupid or lazy some people just think that I, I've been very lucky in uh, a lot of respects. I have a family that's well off. My dad even admitted that one of the reasons that he named me Alex and gave me an androgynous name was for that exact reason. I like to joke around about all the times that I've had people walk up to me either at the office or uh, when I was working at store levels and heard them say, hey, I was told to come over here and ask for Alex. I hear he's really good at whatever this is. And I'm like, yes, she is. She is me. Because they assume because I'm good at something, I have to be a dude. I have to have a penis to make me good at something. But that is... <laughs> The most I can say, I've been very fortunate. I've been given a lot of blessings. I've been given a lot of gifts. And so that's why I said at the very beginning, it's like we can never fully understand it because we haven't lived it. And so then so. for me, like the question is a little bit like, what do we do with that? And how do we like knowing what we know about ourselves and our relative positions in society and our privilege? What do we do? And the conclusion that I've come to, partly because of, you know, uh, Marco Polo conversations with our friends, because we're all trying to like navigate these new waters together and understand like what racial justice is when like we're like this friend group is white. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, I've, I've thought a lot about it. And I think like 
like you said, you know, we talked at the top of the episode about like being educated and trying to understand and, you know, centering other people's experiences. But I think one of the most important parts that you mentioned was, you know, educating other white people and like mm -hmm. trying to talk to our friends and family when they talk about things and be like, when they mention the riots being like protests though, like, and just yeah, kind protests. of trying to put a different lens on things. And for me, I think finding common ground is so important and not in the sense of like, oh, well, we all have things in common, so everything's okay. But like finding those common grounds and being like, well, almost everyone we talk to has at least one marginalized identity. And so how do you get allyship from someone by saying, yeah, you weren't discriminated against because of your skin color, but you grew up poor or you had a learning disability or you are queer or you're not like there's so many identities that we could help people see like yes but because of this you don't have advantages so you can extend your empathy to people who don't have advantages for things they mm -hmm. can't help in a different in a different area of life and not trying to be like you're the enemy because you have all the power but trying to help people understand you are an you are much more like these other people who also are disempowered yeah and that's what i put down as uh things uh, we white people can do is number eight my final thing that i put was embrace your discomfort you are not a villain for being white we're not vilifying you for being white but you will never be a hero if you remain silent and or ignorant check your privilege lots of good quiet people who just wanted what was best for their families were nazis in germany because that was fine and they didn't have to get involved and the government was taking care of it and I don't really know any of the people who are being affected by it but I want my family to be safe. We gave the list at the beginning of things that we can do. I'll even post this list uh, on our website of things uh, white people can do. The most we can do is listen, learn, and be present how we can. And call to listeners. Uh, what, did, what did we get wrong? What did we miss? What yes. are... What are we misinformed about or promoting bad ideas about? Because we are not perfect. We fully recognize that. We, but we want to learn and we're willing to admit when we're wrong. Yeah. And another thing that I want to point out to anyone who's saying is like, oh, uh, but I don't know where to start. I don't know where all this information is. And you took all this time to do all this research. Honestly, I just started being able to work again. Uh, so I am working 40 hours a week. This is the equivalent of me cramming to do homework in two nights, and I got all this information. This is just like two nights, checking my sources, watching documentaries, and a lot of these documentaries I'd watched uh, previously too, but this was really just like two to three nights after work, cramming like I had a final exam coming up to find out what I did. That's how little amount of time I needed to get this much information and like I said at the end that's not even a drop in the bucket there's so many things <sighs> this is a big one yeah I feel good about it I think I think it's important and I think like there's part of the discomfort part of embracing the discomfort is embracing the knowledge that I don't know everything it's embracing like I am putting myself in a vulnerable position by saying like this is what I think but I am not completely informed and I don't have the same experiences as other people. Yeah, I think a lot of people see it as a weakness when you realize that something you said was wrong or something that you said was done. Like the second you admit it, apparently that's like admitting weakness. And I'm like, no, actually, it's a greater strength when you admit that you're wrong. Right, because if you just go on, like there's no chance for you to grow or learn from your actions if you just dig down deeper. 
into yeah. your beliefs. Heath told me, and I told you this earlier, a quote from Trevor Noah. And uh, to paraphrase it, essentially he says is, what is the good way to protest? Uh, people try doing sit-ins, they were told, not like that. Colin Kaepernick tried kneeling during the national anthem, and they said, no, not like that. And every time there's been a peaceful form of protesters, Olympic athletes raising their fists was seen as not like that, as too much. So what is the good way to protest? When people say not like that, what they're saying is shut the fuck up. Right. Yeah. Not like that means really not at all. Because like kneeling yeah. is also a symbol of submission. It wasn't like we were flip like Colin Kaepernick was flipping off the flag. He was kneeling. Yeah. In soccer, because uh, I grew up playing soccer because, yes, I am that white girl who grew up to privilege. I remember whenever a girl got hurt on the field, be it on your team or on the other team, every girl took a knee. It was just a sign of respect that you did whenever someone on the other team was injured. So when I saw Colin Kaepernick kneeling, that's what I thought of. That's what Megan Rapino thought of, and that's why she started kneeling. God, I fucking love Megan Rapino. She's awesome. Um, so. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Whew, we've been recording for two hours and 20 minutes. This is going to be a long episode. But it's a necessary episode, I feel. Thank you again for putting this together. I really just think it's what we need to do right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for giving me the, the go-ahead. Um, I'm really... I, I, I want to say I'm happy with how this episode turned out, but the subject matter, it fractures my soul. Um, but... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of excited to, to put it out there. And I'm interested in the kind of feedback it'll get, um, both positive and negative. So... Yeah, I'm curious, too. Oh. Uh, well, um, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. You know, uh, I think we have our outro that tells you where to find us. I'm going to make myself another damn Jennifer <laughs> convention. I'm going to try not to drink all the Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't blame me if you did. Mm. Well, uh, cheers. Cheers. Clink. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have the same effect. And time in, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, I remember from, from the time I was very small, I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we, we might expect to be attacked. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all the men organize themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just uh, 
I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Doctor, professor, and activist Angela Davis. As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard today, please leave us a positive review and a five-star rating, and tell your friends. All of that helps people know who we are so that we can bring you more of what you love. If you'd like more information on a specific episode, visit our website, crackpotcocktailhour.com, and click on the episode's link. If you'd like to know when new episodes are coming out and see the cocktail recipes in advance, subscribe to us in your podcast app and follow us on social media. We are Crackpot Cocktail Hour on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and we're at Crackpot Hour on Twitter. If you've got feedback for an episode or would like to suggest an episode topic, feel free to email us. We're crackpotcocktailhour at gmail.com. Until next time, crackpots, crack, crack it like it's hot! hot.